I'm going to be back in 1 Peter this morning, chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll go through the chapter. We'll see, we'll see how he directs. But uh, this is a, for me, this has been really exciting studying this. So I hope this is a blessing to you. I hope that this uh, puts action, puts application to our faith. I really, that's, that's my prayer this morning. Um, just like Paul said, if we're not, if we're not moving in a direction that is the same direction that we're praying for, it's, our prayers are kind of futile. I mean, certainly pray, but certainly move as well. We, we need to be in action. And I think that's what Peter is going to show us here. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this great privilege I have to proclaim it. And I pray, Lord, that you would direct the message by your Holy Spirit, that you would proclaim the message and that I would just be the vessel, Lord, that I would not get in the way, that my flesh would not get in the way, and that you would be glorified through this message. Lord, I pray, God, that we would take heed the words that Peter wrote, that you wrote, that you delivered to us. Lord, that the application would be swift, that it would be mighty, that we would apply it in our minds today, that we would apply it in our lives today, God, that you would just give us the power, give us the desire, give us the will, give us the clarity of mind to do that. Because it's only through your power, through your spirit, that we can do any of that. And I pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So he starts, verse 13, he starts with therefore. And if you have a little bit of understanding of hermeneutics, you know that anytime you see a therefore, what do you do? You see what it's there for. You see what the therefore is there for. So he says, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The ESV says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. So what is, let's look at the therefore. What is, it's referring back to something that he just said. So it really refers back to the entire, what we've went through to this point, verses 1 through 12. So why? Why are we going to prepare our minds for action? Why are we going to do that? If, and this is a quick overview of the 12 verses that we've already come through. It's because we're chosen. It's because we are being sanctified. It's because our God has abundant mercy. It's because we have a living hope. We have an incorruptible inheritance. We're kept by the power of God. That's kind of the first 12 verses. Because of all of this, prepare your minds. Because, and basically, in a nutshell, because of the gospel, because you were lost and now you're found, prepare your minds. I like, the, I like the way the New King James says it. The King James says the same thing. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now that is a term that, and the reason, I mean, that's not exactly a normal 2015 American 
terminology. Gird up the loins of your mind, right? So you got to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about in that day, in the day that Peter was writing this, most men wore like a tunic, right? It was more like a robe. It was a long, almost like a dress, right? And it, but it went down to their feet. You've seen illustrations, lots of Jesus. That's what he wore. That's what people wore in that time. Well, before they would go to battle, they can't go to battle like that. It was too restrictive. But they still wore those kind of clothes, and then they would put on armor. But before they would go to battle, they would actually take that tunic and tie it up to where it was almost more like what we would look at as shorts. It would be tied up around their waist. That freed up their legs. And that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying prepare your mind for action, but I think it's more than just prepare your mind. It's, it's prepare your mind for battle. That's what this is. This is, not, this is not like, oh, let's prepare our minds and just like, no. He's saying this is going to be, your mind has to be ready to move. Let's look at, look at the sixth chapter of Ephesians. It's hard for me to talk about this without looking at that. The sixth chapter of Ephesians, he talks about the armor of God. In verse 11, he says, well, verse 10, he says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then he says this, he says, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what are we going to gird up our, the loins of our mind with? We're going to gird it up with truth. Therefore, because of all of these things, because of the truth of the gospel, we're going to prepare our minds for what? For action, for battle, for movement. You know, he goes on, he goes on, he talks about our feet being shod with the gospel of Christ. And I, I don't know if you know, but in the in the military when they're on combat they don't take their boots off when they sleep why because they could be attacked at any moment they they are always prepared for battle and that's the way that we are to be with our minds with peter's talking about this stuff now remember peter's talking to a group of people who have already been under extreme extreme persecution extreme suppression um and it, but he's saying, because of these things I'm telling you, prepare for action. Now, when Peter's saying this, what is that action going to get them? Probably death. Probably imprisonment. Um, torture. Those kind of things are coming with action. And that's what Peter's saying. Even in the midst of all of this, this is not a time for us to lay down. This is not a time for us to sit and hide and be quiet. He's saying, no, because of all these things, because of the truth of these gospels, or the truth of this gospel, you're going to prepare your mind for action. Pull yourselves together. Stand solid. And then he says, he goes on, he says, be, gird up the wounds of your mind, be sober. Be sober or sober-minded. 
And, and you think about that. What exactly does that mean? It's, it's, it's having a sober outlook on a matter or on all matters. It reflects true moderation. It reflects balance. It's not getting... In their case, it would be real easy to focus on the persecution around them, wouldn't it? If that's all that's going on, your, your brother just got arrested and he's facing death, possibly. Uh, you know, there's, I mean, I mean, just the level of things that were going on is incredible. And it would be real easy to focus on that. But he's saying, no, we want a moderation. Be sober-minded. Don't be all slanted towards one thing. Um, if you think about this, and, and the only way that you can do that, I think, is by allowing God to control your mind. Allowing His, the Holy Spirit to really, in, I mean, He's indwelling, but it's allowing Him to work through your mind. And, and it's, it's a, I mean, this is a, this is a hard concept because He is working in you to His pleasure. But yet we are still responsible for our actions and so we have to just take so i think just i think peter's saying be sober be sober-minded take a step back balance your thoughts and be ready um, this god-controlled perspective it'll blend the extremities on both sides of a matter so the on the other hand you don't want to focus on all the negative things that are going on on all the bad things that could happen or the bad things that have happened but on the other hand, you don't want to turn a blind eye to it and just act like, oh, no, everything's fine, which we're seeing, we're seeing some of that in the United States. You talk to Christians and you talk to them about persecution that's coming. Oh, that won't happen here. This is America. Well, that's, that's being pretty naive. So we want, to, we want to have a balance. We want to have a proper balance of perspective of the things that are going on. And then look at what he says. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do you get that balance? You put your hope, you set your mind on Christ and his grace. Stop worrying about the circumstances that are surrounding you now. Stop worrying about them, especially the things that you have no control over. This is so, it's so frustrating to see people worrying about things that they have absolutely no control over and let the things that they do have control over go by the wayside. Stop that. Stop worrying about it. Be consistent in your thoughts and ready always to move. Have your mind ready to move. Why? Because our hope is in Christ and His return. And he may call on you to move at any minute. He may call the troops to assemble, and you need to move. And you, so you have to be ready for that at all times. And I talked last week in the, in the equipping hour about glorification. It's at the return of Christ. That's when the grace will be completed. That's where our hope lies. And that's why to leave these things, to not worry about these earthly things... It's, it really becomes easier when you're focused on Christ and, the, and his return. So focus on that. Whatever it is that you are dwelling on, I mean, what is it that's preventing you from this sober-minded moderation? I thought about me, and many times it's work. 
It's circumstances in my job that completely distract me from a balance that I should have. Um, Could it be your family? Problems at home? Problems with your parents, your spouse's parents? Problems with your children? I mean, we all have those, right? Could that distract you from a moderate, moderate focus? Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm not saying your job's not important. I'm not saying your family's not important. Of course they're important. But when you dwell on that, and you're getting all lopsided thinking about that one thing, then you're not sober-minded. Then you're not dwelling where God wants you, your mind to dwell. What about health? That's an easy one. That one gets in the way really easy to get that one in the way, especially when yours is failing or a family member's. But that's not. It's still focus, moderation. Sinful activities can do it in a heartbeat. You can go down a road in a second that you don't want to be on, and before you know it, you're so far away from uh, from a being sober-minded, you don't even know how you got there. Or what about our country and the downfall of it, the spiral that it's on right now, the laws that are being passed or not being passed? I was I was just talking to Dylan. There's a there's a group that are, you know, they want to abolish human abortion, which is obviously a great thing. Get rid of it. But at the same time, you can get so focused on that one particular thing and not on the gospel, you can be lopsided. You can be lopsided towards really, really good causes. What about the fear of man? The fear of what's going to happen can completely manipulate your mind. And so ask yourself this. Is what I am dwelling, dealing with, what I'm dwelling on, is it harder than what the Christians that Peter was writing to? Is it harder than what they were dealing with? Now remember, Nero was taking Christians and dipping them in tar and lighting the streets of Rome with them. Is what we're dealing with harder than that? I don't think it is, and if it's not, then I think we need to listen to what Peter was telling them. Because if he's telling them, prepare your minds for action, then he's telling us, prepare our minds for action. We don't have time. This is not the time that we can dwell in self-pity. It's like... It's like when you consider war. If you're a soldier and you're, you're sitting around the base, soldier's job is to fight, right? That's, that's their job. Protect the, protect the nation. And they call you to action. There's not time to say, well, I don't know. You know, I, I would go, but, but my kids, they're acting they've been acting really, just really bad. I don't think I can go. No, soldier doesn't get that option. A soldier is when he's called to battle has to go then. You know, well, I'm fighting with my spouse. We're really having a hard time. I don't think I can go. It's not that simple. We have to be called. We have to be ready to move when called. Now, here's the other thing about that. A soldier's going to fight better if he doesn't have those distractions. So those little things, that, especially the ones we control, 
We need to have them in order before we're called. You know, if you're having trouble with your spouse, don't wait until you're called to action to address that problem. If you're having problems with your children, don't wait until you're called to action to address those problems. But, but regardless, be ready. Be ready. Have your mind ready for action. Then look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Isn't that incredible? The, the New King James says it like this, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Is that not describing us to a T? And then when you find yourself straying on those little things, is that not exactly it? Ignorance and our former lusts? I mean, really, when, when, I, when I stumble and I commit this sin, the best way to say it is that was ignorant. I mean, it was just stupid. And he's saying, don't do that. Your former self was ignorant. Your, those things, whenever I said the therefore, all those things I listed, the because we're chosen, because we're being sanctified, because our God has abundant mercy, we have a living hope, incorruptible inheritance, all of those things, we were ignorant of them before. If you're ignorant of all of that, of course you're going to live your sinful lifestyle. That's your nature. But once he reveals those things to you, we're no longer ignorant to them. Don't do it anymore. Move on as obedient children. I mean, these are, these are Christians he's writing to. He's writing to us as Christians. And if you're in Christ, then you are an obedient child. It just depends. It, sometimes it takes a little longer to go into obedience than other times. But drop it. Just drop that former mindset that you had. Forget it. Let it go and move on. What does this look like? How do we do this? We look to Christ. See, he says, he says, he who called you is holy, then you're going to be holy. So how do we look? How do we find holiness? We look to him. We see what true holiness is. Through he who is holy. And we pattern ourselves after that. Now how are you going to do that. Apart from studying who Christ is. Apart from studying his life. So the only way. The only way possible to do this. There's two things. Well three. One is reading the scriptures. You have to read what he wrote to us. You have to read what he said to others. We have to study his life, the life of the Christ, the, the perfect one. The other is through hearing the scriptures and hearing them expounded and meditating on them. And it's still studying Christ. And the third is through prayer, communing with Christ, communicating with Christ. And all of those things together will actually allow us to become more holy. It will allow us to become more sanctified in pursuing holiness of he who is holy. 
the, the scripture comes to mind, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we would remember that one scripture, I think it would help us a lot. It's one that I quote a lot to my students. Everybody has questions. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? That's pretty much the answer to all those questions. Well, is it conforming to the world? Because if it is, then I think it's pretty clear you're not to do it. But be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to think on Christ and His holiness. And it takes care of a lot of things. By doing that, this is a witness to the world. Our sober-mindedness, our consistency of thought, our hope in the midst of chaos, our joy in the midst of a storm, those are glorifying to God. No matter how bad the chaos is, no matter how, no matter how strong the storm is, we can glorify God in that. And if He gets glory, it is worth it. It's, it's worth it. In verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father... Who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you call on him as father, of course we call on him as father. I mean, he's talking about if you call that, if, if you do that, then you, that's, he's talking to us. That's who he is, right? He's our father. He is God. But listen, it says he judges impartially. He is no respecter of persons. When God judges, it is based strictly on His moral code. It's it's measured by His measuring stick, who is Christ, the Holy One. That's the measuring stick on how we're judged. It does not matter who you are. This is the only time, this is the only impartial judge. Man is not capable of impartiality. It's just not true. I mean, it's just not possible. And I deal with this as a school teacher a lot. They'll be like, well, you have your favorites. It kind of throws them off when I say, yeah, I do. What? You can't have favorites? Yeah, I do. We all do. Why? Well, who's your favorites? Well, usually the ones who show up, do their work, don't talk back to me. When I tell them to do something, they do it. Yeah, those are my favorites. It's a true story. Okay? I'm I'm just the only one that's honest. Other people say, oh, no, I don't have any favorites. Really? You're not fooling anybody here. Okay? There's no way we can be impartial. Not in this flesh. But God. He doesn't care who your parents are. He doesn't care who your grandparents are. He doesn't care where you live, what church you go to, what religion, quote unquote. None of that matters. He judges according to his moral code, his measuring stick, which is Christ. It doesn't matter what race, what creed, what country, what time period you lived in, like somehow living in biblical times was more of a blessing than living in now, 
or living it now is somehow more of a blessing than living it. No, it doesn't matter. He is an impartial judge, and none of that matters. All that matters is his moral code, whether or not you have sinned, which we know we've all sinned. So his measuring stick is Christ, and the only way you measure up to Christ is if you are in Christ. That's it. He's an impartial judge. And that is why we're to conduct ourselves with fear and reverence and awe. You know, there's the, there's the, uh, we should have a relationship with Christ and with our Father where we can go to Him and cry, Abba, Father. He's our dad. You know, we, we have that relationship where we can approach the throne of God with boldness. But there's also still a reverence. There's still an awe. You see the t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Anybody seen that t-shirt or bumper sticker or whatever? The, um, I wouldn't recommend wearing that shirt. I don't, I don't really like the terminology. The, the, I don't know if it was million tracks or one of the track places came out with a track that said, Jesus is not your homeboy. He's your judge. And it's true. There's, there's just this certain level of fear that we should still have because we know in our flesh we are not holy. And we know in our flesh we should stumble. And it's no different. Than, I had more respect for my dad. I, it, he, was, he was a great disciplinarian. He, he did that well. But I also never doubted that he loved me. And when I messed up, I knew, it wasn't like he was going to kick me out of the house or, or you know, any, he, he never went past the line that he should have went. And I knew that. But I still had a level of fear. When I messed up, I knew there's, there's a certain fear there. And, and part of the, I, I think the largest part of the fear was the disappointment. I did not want to disappoint him. And I would still do dumb things, and I would disappoint him. And that level of fear was, oh, he's so, he's just he's he's better than me. He's he's older than me. He's more mature than me. He's going to think this is just childish, which it was. And I had a certain level of fear. That's the kind of fear I think that we're going to approach God with, as as His children, as His chosen, as His saved. We're going to approach Him with that level of awe and fear that I do not want to disappoint my father I know he loves me and because he loves me he's going to chastise me and then he says the time of your exile this refers back you remember the term that he used to to address the readers of this letter it was pilgrims we're exiled here it's a reminder this isn't our home this world it's not our home we should be detached from this world, but we're not. I think this terminology should remind us that we are sojourners, that we're pilgrims here. But listen to what John MacArthur said, and I, I agree with him. He said, I think we are so into this world that the thought of coming, the coming of Christ would be somewhat distressing to us. Now think about that. Is this true? Have you heard other people say things like this? I have. 
I've I've made comments before, like I'm just ready for Jesus to return, and somebody else say, "Oh no, I want to see my I just want to see my kids grow up a little bit." And I remember being young, and and I remember thinking, "Well, I don't, I don't want Jesus to come back until I get married, or you know, until I get to go to college." And young people are probably even more susceptible to this, even if the even if they are believers. But even us, even us, we get we get attached, and it's like. There's times, if you're going to be honest, there's times you really want to, you've been working really hard for one thing and it's happening this weekend. And if somebody said, okay, you've done all this work, but Christ is going to return. If you really, really got honest with yourself, you may not be as excited about that as what we should be. Just wait a day. We should be so detached from this world, from our children, from our parents, from our spouses. We should be so detached from that that if Christ was, if you knew Christ was going to return, there would be nothing but rejoicing. I'm not saying you should be detached from your children and your wives and all that, but it should be so secondary to Christ because whatever it is that you're looking forward to, whatever it is that you're just holding on to, it is going to, it's, it's going to pale in comparison to the glory of Christ's return. And, and, that, and that's part of, I think, what Peter's saying here. He's like, drop the attitude of this earth. Drop the attitude of, I want these things. And be sober-minded thinking on Christ. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but your aimless conduct, conduct received by tradition from your fathers. The ESV, I think, says you were ransomed, redeemed. It means to gain or regain possession of something. Technically speaking, it, it is the term for a price paid to buy back somebody headed for judgment. You think about it like a prisoner of war or a slave. That's the term. It was buying a slave's freedom, buying them out of slavery. We were redeemed by Christ. Redeemed by Christ. He created us, and yet He has He had to redeem His very creation. You could almost say we were twice owned. I read an illustration. This little boy spends an incredible amount of time for a child building this little boat. And I mean, just for a child, an hour of work is a long time. And this one put in way extra time, made it awesome. It rains. He goes out to the ditch. He's in the city. He goes out to the drainage, the storm drain. He puts the boat in to sail it for the first time. And the water's moving pretty swift, and it takes off. And he's at first he's really excited because it floats and it works. And he's like, yeah, my boat works. And then it just keeps on going. He's chasing it, and he, it gets away from him. He loses it. He can't find it. A couple of days later, he's in a little shop, and there's his boat. Somebody had found it. It's in one of these little antique shop things, kind of a thrift store. And there it is, and he's like, hey, that's my boat. And they said, no, that's not your boat. That's our boat. It's for sale. And he argues and pleads and they're like no it's not yours so what's he do he goes back home and he 
he scrounges around and finds all this spare change that he can find, and he goes back and he buys his boat back. And now he's redeemed it. It was created by him, but yet he had to still redeem it. That's a very poor illustration of the Creator making us, creating us, giving us life, and yet we went our own way. We went our sinful direction. We sinned against the one who created us, and so then he has to go back and redeem us. But the the cost of this redemption was actually higher than the cost of the creation, if you think about that. To create us, he, he merely spoke it, right? Just, I mean, when he created man the first time, he just creates him out of the ground with, a, with the power of his word, he can create. But the redemption, the ransom, ransom required the shedding of blood. It's incredible. And it says, what were we redeemed from? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And, I mean, you can consider who Peter's writing this to. You can consider what, with us personally, our forefathers, the futile ways. The bottom line is, all other ways outside of Christ are futile. They're worthless. So the, the, the Jews who were trying to earn their salvation by the law was worthless. Me, who was trying to earn my salvation by my works before Christ was worthless. Worshiping some kind of pagan God, praying five times a day, it's all worthless, it's all futile outside of Christ. But he said he didn't redeem it, not with silver and gold. No, these things are all corrupt. They're all soon to be destroyed. There'll be nothing more than the road that we walk on in heaven. Silver and gold. If you think about that, all the silver and the gold all of it in the world. And there's been many wars fought over this. Been many men died for silver and gold in mines and trying to come up with this. But all of it in the entire world couldn't save one soul. Couldn't ransom, wouldn't pay the price of one. All the wealth and riches in the world, all the things that men strive for to get just a little grasp on, they offer nothing in eternity. But no, it was bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. This is the Passover for fulfilled. The true Lamb of God, the Creator, has paid the ransom. He's redeemed His own creation with His own blood. Twice owned and now permanently, we've been redeemed. It's fulfilled. It's complete. Are you getting a feeling here? Are you getting are you getting this? Does this make you want to gird up the loins of your mind? Does this make you want to just lock and load for Christ? I'm not talking about a physical sense. I'm talking about in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. Do we want to go to battle for him? Does it make you want to spend time praising him in prayer? Does it make you want to spend time praying for others to come into this ransom, to be ransomed? You've been bought. Can you imagine being a slave and you having your family in there with you? 
And somebody comes along and he ransoms you. He put, hey, look, look, Tyler, I'm paying the price. It's paid. You are no longer a slave. Come on. Is he going to go? And, the, and he knows the guy can ransom more. Is he just going to walk off and leave his family? Is he going to walk off and leave his friends? Or what about the ones he doesn't even know? They're in this terrible situation. And he, he knows the one who can pay their price, who can pay their penalty. Does this not make you want to strive for that? Make you want to go forward, advance, advance the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. We've been redeemed. Now let's go share it with others and pray to God that we would see more redeemed, that we would see the ransom paid for more. And then verse 20, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. King James says, foreordained. It was already decided. It was planned before the foundation of world of the world that Jesus would come to redeem sinful man. Before man ever sinned, this was the plan. This is how God demonstrates his attributes of grace and mercy. Without this plan, he could not demonstrate that. Without man being sinful, he couldn't demonstrate that. But he does through his son, sending him born of a woman, born of a virgin. Living a perfect life and dying. Shedding the blood to pay the ransom. But then because he was holy, because he was the holy one, he could not stay in the grave. He comes forth. And because of that, God's grace is proclaimed. God's mercy is proclaimed. We are proclaiming it. We are walking images of his grace and mercy. And it's been manifest in this last times for the sake of you. It was The plan was there from the get-go. It was there from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. But now, it is fully made manifest in this time. We get to see it in its completion. We get to see the fruits of regeneration and sanctification like the time, like the, like the prophets never even got to see. They didn't get to see it come. Not like we we looking back on it. They were believing on it in the future, but we get to look back on it. We get to see the full fruits of this, and it's for our sake. It was for the sake of the Christians, the believers, the pilgrims. And then verse 21, he says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Without him, you notice there it says, who through him, through Christ, through the Redeemer, are believers in God. Without him, we are not believers in God. We couldn't do it on our own. Without him, we would bow the knee to Baal. Without him, we would bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Without him, we would be bowing today to the idol of secular humanism. Or to Allah, or to who knows what we would be doing without him. We would be bowing to something false. 
something made up in our minds, something created by man to be worshipped. And it would be absolutely idolatry and it would be terrible. But because through him we are believers in God, through Christ, our hope is in the Lord. In verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So because we are in Christ, we can see the truth, and because of the Holy Spirit, we can obey the truth. That combination gives us a purification of the soul. That combination gives us a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you ever wonder why it is that when I see people hurting who are Christians, I hurt too? That was not my mindset before I was in Christ. That was not my mindset before I was saved. I didn't weep with those who wept. I ignored it. Unless it was somebody that was really close to me. Then I did. My my direct family. But when I would hear of things like, you know, this person has, you know, is dying in the hospital. And I didn't really know him. And it was some friend of mine's friend. It's like wasn't my problem. I would, I would put on a fakeness. I would put on a false uh, sympathy. Oh, I'm really sorry. But now that I'm in Christ, that's different. I truly do weep. Even if I don't know the person, if I see one of my brothers or sisters hurting, there's something inside me that says, well, that's really sad. Where does that come from? It comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Again, it's not corruptible. It cannot perish. Because Christ is perfect. He always was perfect. And we're now partakers of that. We've been born again. That was one of the things we talked about in in the equipping hour. Regeneration. Being born again. That's what Nate was talking about this morning. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he talked about being born again. Ronnie tells a story. He was, he was sharing the gospel with a guy on a job several years ago. And he told the guy, or he asked the guy, have you been born again? Now, we're in, a, in, our, in our place where we live, middle America. The term is kind of somewhat acknowledgeable. People have heard it. But this guy was honest, and he said, I've been born one time. And he was right. He's been born one time. So what does it mean to be born again? Since you've been born again. It's that regeneration. It's that new life in the soul. It's the dead soul coming to life through Christ and being able to see Him and being able to believe in Him and being able to follow His ways and being holy because He is holy. That's what being born again is. And it we, we can't be born after a perishable seed. If the seed would have been put in the ground and it would have stayed there and not came forth, then that can't regenerate you. That can't make you born again. But Christ was put in the grave, but he did not stay there. 
His body did not see corruption. Why? Because he was born, he he came forth, he resurrected, he overcame death. And that's the same resurrection, I talked about it last week in glorification, that's the same resurrection that we're going to experience. Being born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. This seed cannot die. It is imperishable. It cannot rot. It cannot die through the living and abiding word of God. That's Christ. Again, it's through Christ. Do you see the picture? Through Christ, through Christ, through Christ. The living word. How do we know Christ? It's the living word of God. Read it. Study it. Study him. And we will start to be holy. We will become more holy. We will become more sanctified. And because of that, we're going to move to action. And then verse 24, he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. I mean, look outside right now. It's that time of year. I haven't had to mow in like three weeks. The grass is dying. Do you remember a couple of years ago, if you lived here then, the drought was incredible. Nothing was alive. The grass was dying. The trees were starting to die. It's just a matter of time. It's all going to die. All of its glory, like the flower or grass, it's going to wither away and it's going to be gone. But look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It was the good news. Peter goes back. How many times has he went back to the gospel in this first chapter? He goes back. The good news that was preached to you. Now consider these people. Consider these people of the Roman Empire at this time. That's, that's reading this for the first time. That's hearing this for the first time since Peter wrote on the message. The word of the Lord remains forever. No matter what your circumstances are. No matter how bad it seems to be going around you, this word of the Lord is solid and it does not move. It is like a rock. It is a rock. It's solid. And so we got, we have to, we have to get our minds off of ourselves. That's the number one thing. We have to quit focusing on ourselves and our present circumstances. We have to turn our minds to Christ and prepare for movement. You can picture picture the troops, uh, and you can think about in, in biblical times when they would be preparing for battle. Couldn't everybody sense it? Don't you think there was a sense in the air of, okay, and you could hear that even the, the horses would sense it. They'd start stamping their feet a little, back, a little bit, and you could hear the leather being put on. You could hear the armor being put on. Cinching down, cinching down the the straps, dropping the stirrups, heavier breathing coming from the horses. Why? There's a sense of something going on. We're about to go to war. I think that's the sense that we need to be having here today as a church, not in a physical battle. Ronnie, I think it was Wednesday night you talked about prayer, right? That's where it starts. That's where it starts. How many of us, and I think he asked this question Wednesday night, how many of us can say we pray enough? How many people have ever laid on their deathbed and said, man, 
I just spent too much time in prayer. It's not going to happen. It's not a possibility. We need to be spending more time in our prayer, in our spiritual battle. In our, in the battle that's going on in the spiritual realm can only be won by God. We need to spend time in that. And then, as we're praying, we need to also be listening to the movement, to the, to the direction of the Holy Spirit. So when He says, okay, you need to go forth. You need to go here and proclaim the gospel. Or you need to go to this place and proclaim the gospel. Or it needs to be done here in your family. Or here in your home. Or here on the job. Or you need to go forth to the college. Or you need to go to the abortion clinic. Or you need to go to the hospitals or the nursing homes. And the gospel has to go forth. And when he directs you to do it, you have to be in tune through prayer so that you can listen and you can go into battle. And that is coming more to me than you can even imagine. Because I'm weak. And I'm fragile. And it's not easy to admit that, but it's true. I'm scared. The truth is, I have a fear of man. I have a fear that if I go, I might get looked down on. I might get ridiculed. Somebody might not like me. That's the truth. They might not. How weak and fragile are we? It's time to cinch it up. It's time to really gird up the loins of our mind and take this message forth. We have the message of eternal life. And they're going to ridicule us for it? Yep, they always have. For 2,000 years, they've ridiculed, they've mocked, they will, and it, it's not going to change until Christ's return. They've also persecuted and tortured and killed, and that's not going to change until Christ's return either. He, he told us that. The question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it if you could see one, one soul redeemed? The angels rejoice in heaven. Over one repentant. Shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we seek the same? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father. Lord I I thank you God. For this message and the conviction that you've put on my heart. Last week and, and today. And Lord I pray God. This afternoon, I pray, God, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the rest of this week and the rest of this month that I would put this into application, that that I would heed your words that you wrote so many years ago and that are still so true today that I would listen to them and that I wouldn't be the only one, but that this church would, would listen that we would go forth, that we, that we would prepare our minds, that we would be ready for action, and when you would tell us to move, we would move. We would be so in tune that we wouldn't hesitate. We'd be faithful in obedience. I, I pray, God, for anyone here who's struggling with these things, who's struggling with a lopsided view, who's struggling with uh, just focusing on 
different circumstances, God, that you would cause the Holy Spirit, that you would, that the Holy Spirit would cause them to have a change of mind, to change their perspective to Christ. In His name, I pray. Amen.